a deep dive in banks because literally they are where the money is. Hi, fools! Welcome to uh, Monday's edition of Where the Money Is. I'm financial analyst Michael Douglas, and I'm here with senior banking specialist John Maxfield. John, how are you doing? How was your weekend? It was great. Thank you. Thank you very much. How was yours? Oh, uh, it was pretty good. Uh, sort of uh, highs and lows. I uh, had a luau that I went to uh, at my church, and then uh, promptly had to have a cavity filled this morning. So it's 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 the best of times and the worst of times. I guess. Yeah, I would love to see you in a in a grass skirt, uh, Michael. <laughs> And 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 we're going to move on, to, uh, on. <laughs> right into uh, to, to bank stocks. So we want to talk a little bit about you know how do you avoid the bad ones? How do you get into the good ones? But but first off, a little bit of background, right? And, and I'm drawing heavily from uh, Morgan Housel's appearance on where the money is in 2013, um, you know, where he talks about the fact that in, in, in over a hundred years, the banking industry, on the whole, basically didn't make any money. Uh, you know, they would make a bunch in the boom times, then they'd lose it all in the bust times. Um, and since the founding of the country, you know, we've had 17 banking panics. That equates to about one every 13 years. You know, with the SNL uh, fiasco, we had, the, of course, the 2008 financial recession, the most recent one. Um, and, and as Morgan pointed out, you know, in a single quarter during the, the 2008 financial crisis, uh, Merrill Lynch lost more money than they had made in the previous eight years. So really uh, pretty substantial losses and pretty substantial risk. I, I think the first question people have got to ask is, you know, why are banks so risky? John? We have a couple of things going on here, Michael. The first is that just banks, by their very nature, are highly leveraged institutions. So let's just take uh, kind of your, your average leverage ratio for a bank. They're 10 to 1. So that means that you're holding one or 10% of capital for every 100% of, of your assets. So what that means is that when you're going through a credit cycle, right, and your, some of your loans are going to go bad, which is inevitable even at the best run banks, but when at, at a poorly run bank, it only takes – um, a decrease in the value of your assets of 10% to totally wipe out the capital of a bank. So just by their very nature, they're inherently, um, uh, they're inherently subject to failure. And on top of that, you have um, this thing called fractional reserve lending, which means that you know, you'll take as a bank, say, $100 million worth of deposits, but you'll actually loan out maybe a billion dollars uh, in loans. So if you, any time, if you have your depositors coming to your bank and they want to take out all of their deposits, well, that will subject, that'll subject you to illiquidity. And that will happen when your reputation is damaged. So banks are constantly fighting this fight of keeping the reputation intact to make sure you're not going to have this liquidity risk, right, uh, when all your depositors run. And the third thing you have going on is that just innately because of human behavior, banks are very subject to mismanagement. So when times are going really well, you're going to have property values and asset values increase. So what will happen at a bank is they'll increase the, the collateral level of that asset or, or, or that real estate or, or whatever it is. But then when the economy crashes and those collateral values crash and, and those loans default, banks have basically no recourse for bad loans. And that's when you lose all your money. And this is the same thing we talk about with investing. When times are good, you get greedy and you invest. When times are bad, you get out. And that's exactly what bankers are prone to. Gotcha. Well, and, and, and first off, good answer. Secondly, sorry that I, that I sort of set you up with a sort of Joe Biden-style question there. I, you know, I feel like I had about you know, five minutes of intro before I finally asked you the question. <laughs> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be a little bit more brief with my next one. Okay, so they're pretty risky, and you gave three good reasons why. So is this a sector investors should even be invested in? 
That's a great question. So, um, you know, I'm biased. Uh, not only have I invested in banks um, in my past, but I also, this is what I do for a living. I, I study banks. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so I hope that people continue to invest in banks so they'll, they'll continue to read my, my analysis. But this is what I would say. When you look at the banking sector in general, the one thing you pointed out at the very beginning is that the banking sector overall, over a long period of time, has allegedly not made money in aggregate. But if you dig into the top banks in there, your, your M&T banks, your New York Community Bank uh, Corp, your Wells Fargo, um, your U.S. Bank Corp, what you see are huge gains over the long term. I mean, these are 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 percent gains. So it's not that you should avoid the banking sector in general, but it's that you need to be really, really selective when you go in there and pick one to invest in. Gotcha. And that's definitely something that we'll talk about more a little further in. But the first off, okay, so you know, we talked a little bit beforehand, and you said, you know, let's talk about some misperceptions. And, and when, you, uh, when you and I talked about them, I mean, some of them just on their face seem crazy that they're misconceptions. And the first one, I think, is a perfect example. I mean, growth is good. Well, and of course growth is good, right? I mean, come on. You know, we're, we're investing in stocks. We want revenue to go up. We want earnings to go up. Isn't growth inherently good? Why not? Okay, so growth, it, it, there's, there are nuances to growth, right? So as a general rule, yes, growth is good. However, it has to be good quality growth. Okay, so what do we mean by this? This means that the, the, the principal way a bank grows um, organically, which is, you know, if you're not growing by acquisition, is to increase your loan portfolio because loans are assets to a bank. So in order, in order to increase your balance, the size of your balance sheet, you have to make more loans. Well, because a loan is basically just selling money to somebody for a price, which is the interest rate, you can always find a captive audience to sell your loans to, right? So if you go out there and grow for simply the sake of growth, and make loans to just basically anybody for any price, you're going to end up, when that credit cycle turns, getting demolished. And that's what we've seen time and time again in all these banking cycles. So, yes, growth is good. However, it has to be uh, appropriate, prudent growth. Sustainable growth. No, that totally makes sense. Uh, the, the second one uh, sort of seems to be the opposite of, of value investing. You know, buying bank stocks at the lowest value is the way to get the best return. I mean, you know, we believe in the buy low, sell high. I mean, that, that seems to be kind of a, a fundamental part of value investing. Why doesn't that necessarily apply here in banking? All right, so let's talk about some examples. So right now, um, kind of the narrative around bank stocks is you have banks like Bank of America and Citigroup, which are trading for a relatively significant discount to book value. I think they're trading something like 25% to book value or mm. something like that. Okay, now this is the traditional metric that you use to value a bank. And, and, and in normal times, when times are when times are good, or rather, you're going to be seeing banks trade for one times book, 1.5 times book, two times book. Mm -hmm. So the so the theory is that look, you buy a Bank of America, you buy a Citigroup trading at 25 uh, percent discount to book, then you sell it right when times are good at one and a half times book. So you're going to double your money. Well, the problem with that is that so let's say even you're able to do that, and so that that gives you 100 percent return. Well, if you want the real returns in banking, I mean like the 1,000%, the 2,000%, the 3,000% return, two things need to happen. You need to hold it for a very long time, and that's going to encompass multiple credit cycles, and you need to buy the absolute best banks. 
So if you buy a Bank of America at 75, or 75% of its book value, and then it doubles, but then you go through another credit cycle and then it goes down 90%, you're going to be ultimately out your money. Meanwhile, if you buy a Wells Fargo or US Bank Corp, it goes through multiple cycles. Maybe it's already trading at two times book value, but it's still trading at two times book value after three or four cycles, uh, two or three decades. And you're going to have these huge gains building up in your portfolio because of its dividend and its increase in its, in its own book value. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you actually argue that to some extent it's not necessarily possible to value bank stocks, even though we do have these ideas, uh, price to book, price to tangible book. Uh, tell, tell me, why, why aren't those really sufficient to, to understand the value of a bank stock? So anybody who thinks that they can value a bank, they just categorically don't know what they're talking about. So if you go through any of the financial documents of a bank, you look at, like, let's, let's talk about the balance sheet, right? You look at that, that line, that single line item for loans. Well, that line item, I, I mean, it, it can encompass tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of loans. And each one of those loans has its own individual characteristics that means that, that affect the risk. And risk impacts the value. So it is literally impossible. And, and I'm saying, like, even the top top bank analysts in this country, it is literally impossible to get a good grasp of what the actual value of a bank is. So what you have to do is you just have to go back, look at history, see the consistency of their earnings stream, and then you value it basically just a price to earnings basis off of that, uh, off of that history. Fight in words. Uh, I, I, I like that. I think you, know, you, you simply do not know what you're talking about if you think you can value them. So definitely something we'll want to, to, to consider and, and think about when we're, when we're talking about banks from, from here on out. So, so let's, let's turn away from these misconceptions a little bit and maybe go into some of the ways to spot good banks. Um, and, you know, what you talk about usually is uh, something like prudent risk management, um, you know, the sustainability of, of growth. Um, the history of accretive acquisitions and a little bit, uh, usually on a, on a low efficiency ratio. Unpack these a little bit. Tell us a little bit about them. All right. So let's just talk about kind of the big picture yeah. here. Um, if you want a really, really good bank and you want to identify a really, really good bank, and there is only one statistic that you can use, you look at the efficiency ratio, okay? And what the efficiency ratio is, that takes your operating costs, or on the, on the income statement, they're, they're, they're referred to as your non-interest expenses, and you divide that by your total revenue before your loan loss provisions, okay? So that just tells you basically the percent of every dollar in revenue that's going to pass through or that's being consumed by your expenses. So then you look on the other, so let's say your, your efficiency ratio is 55%. That means that 45% of your revenue is going to make it down to your bottom line in order to pay taxes and to accrue to shareholders through either dividends, share buybacks, or an organic increase in book value. Okay, so that just by its nature is important, right? Because if you're eating up 70, 80, 85% of your earnings just in your operating expenses, that doesn't leave very much for your shareholders, okay? And that's what you have a Bank of America doing, a Citigroup doing, right? But beyond that, what we have found, if you look back in history, is that there is a strong correlation between an efficiency ratio and the loan loss provisions, uh, or not loan loss provisions, but a bank's susceptibility to writing bad loans. And the reason for this is that if you're not making a lot of money, if, you're not, if you don't have a high return on assets or a high return on equity because of high expenses, you're going to go somewhere else to try to artificially boost your profit. And the easiest way to do that, at least in the short run, is to write a lot of loans. And when you write a lot of loans, a lot of them are obviously going to be bad. Mm-hmm. 
No, that uh, that totally makes sense. Uh, and we've certainly <laughs> seen that susceptibility become uh, a real problem for some of the big U.S. banks in particular. Uh, I won't name names, but I think we both know who I'm talking about. Uh, let's talk about accretive acquisitions. Okay, so, you know, the banking industry is an interesting industry because if you go back a, a few hundred years, what we've seen in this country is for a very, very long time, we had what was called unit banking. And that prohibited, that's basically your, your single bank, right? Mm-hmm. Just hanging up a shingle, taking people's deposits, making loans to this local community. There were laws that stopped banks from opening multiple branches and stop banks from interstate banking, right? Banking in multiple states under one holding company, okay? So when this opened up, all this stuff opened up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, you saw a lot of consolidation, right? And we're still in the midst of this huge consolidation wave. So other than your organic growth in just in loans, you see a lot of growth right now in acquisitions. But the problem is that Buying a bank is something you have to be really, really careful with because when you buy a bank, you can go in and buy a bank that has a, a, has written a lot of bad loans, and then you take those onto your balance sheet. It exposes your capital to losses, right? So what you want to do that the, what you want to do here is that when you go through a cycle and banks lose their loans, the FDIC will go in and take that bank over. But then the FDIC doesn't want to just turn into an enormous bank holding company. So what they do is they then take those banks and sell them to better capitalize competitors. But they sell them for basically pennies on the dollar, and they'll oftentimes even insure a lot of those bad assets at the the acquiring bank. And that is the definition of an accretive acquisition. When you're basically getting hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deposits, if not more than that, you're getting a ton of loans, and you basically get all the good loans where the FDIC takes all the bad ones, um, and you get all these branches, you get all these customers, and you basically have to pay nothing for it. And that, when you look at the really good banks, is how they buy banks um, going forward. Gotcha. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely sounds like a pretty, pretty good, easy win for them. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're an investing show, right? <clears throat> so we're not just interested in, in the theory, but also in the practice. What's your favorite bank stock right now? All right, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a few. Okay. okay? And I'm going to pick one. I, I, I hear that. <laughs> I. I, I and I'm going to cheat because it just so happens that my favorite banks are also, by and large, owned by Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Because Warren Buffett, running an insurance company, an insurance company is basically the reciprocal of a bank. It's almost the same thing. He knows how to identify great banks. He owns Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank Corp., and m Bank. And I'll throw one more in on top of that, New York Community Bank Corp. These are excellent banks that have histories of run- running efficiently and writing good loans paying a lot, add a lot of money to their shareholders, and literally making their shareholders over multiple decades extremely wealthy. All right. Well, it sounds like a, sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty good list. Definitely something that we'll want to dig into, perhaps individually in future episodes. Um, I think that's all we've got for today. Uh, John, thanks much. Uh, stay tuned, of course, folks, to Fool.com for all of your uh, healthcare, financials, consumer goods, et cetera, investing needs, and Fool on. <laughs>